You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. It started out like a typical August morning in South Bend, Indiana. Partly cloudy, temperatures headed for 80 degrees, sweet summer perfection. Scott Dick, a 29-year-old married father of two, wouldn't get to enjoy the sunshine. He was scheduled to work that day. Dick was the assistant manager of the South Bend Osco Drugstore in the Phoenix Shopping Center on the west end of town. Just after 7.30 a.m., he let himself in, using the store's front entrance, locking it behind him before deactivating the store alarm. Scott clocked in for his shift and started to prepare the store for the arrival of his team, and, soon after, the arrival of customers. He had no idea that he was minutes away from coming face-to-face with an armed gunman intent on robbing the store and leaving no witnesses behind. Come with me to a sunny summer Saturday in late August of 1990, when a robbery ended in a brutal and terrifying triple murder. Saturday is a busy day when you work retail. It's often the busiest day of the week for stores. When Scott Dick arrived that morning, he immediately set to work getting everything in order to make sure his team was off to a good start. After deactivating the alarm, he accessed the top part of the store safe where the cash drawers are kept. Each of the store's registers needed a cash drawer in place when the store opened. If, like me, you aren't familiar with Osco, Back in 1990, they were a drugstore, similar to Walgreens or CVS. They sold health, self-care, and beauty items, some snack foods, and they had a small home section with cleaners, paper plates, and the like, plus a photo department and a full-service pharmacy. After letting himself into the building and deactivating the store alarm at 7.36 a.m., Scott started his own work while waiting on his opening staff, clerk Connie Zalewski and store pharmacist Tracy Holvoit. Alicia Ivories, a store employee, called in that morning, and while he had other staff on the schedule, this would make him shorthanded on their busiest day of the week. A customer, Amy Avery, stopped by the store at 7.30 that morning but found the store closed and locked. Avery decided to continue her errands and would return to the store just after 8 a.m., but again, she found the store closed. Avery peered in the windows and tapped on the glass, briefly spotting an African-American man inside the store, but no one responded to her or opened the door. Also, just before 8 a.m., the manager of the dry-cleaning business in the same shopping plaza saw Scott Dick outside of his store. Scott was carrying a women's dress and some other pieces. He was hoping to drop them off for cleaning, but as the cleaner wasn't open yet, he returned to Osco with the items. Another witness, Mary Jane Karzewski, would report that she was in her vehicle outside the grocery store with a view of Osco, and she saw two women, likely Holvoet and Zalewski, enter the store with, quote, a man they appeared to know which I believe was Scott returning from his unsuccessful visit to the dry cleaner. At this time, a few minutes after 8 a.m., a customer, Fred McGill, enters the store and asks where the razors are. 
He will later identify the pharmacist, Tracy Holvoet, as the person he spoke with. After browsing the selection, McGill leaves the store without buying anything and heads to nearby Kroger, where he makes a purchase. Another customer, Marge Gartner, enters the store at the same time as Fred McGill. She walks to the photo counter. Remember, in 1990, people are using traditional cameras that take film, and that film needs to be developed. So the photo counter was a popular spot for customers. Gartner speaks with an African-American woman standing near the photo counter. She assumed that the woman was an employee, but she tells her no, she doesn't work there. When McGill and Gardner leave the store without buying anything, it's assumed that the woman followed them to the entrance, locking the door behind them so no one else could enter. I want to clarify here that Scott Dick, Connie Zalewski, and Tracy Holboet are all Caucasian. So the African-American woman by the photo counter and the black man that customer Amy Avery spotted were not staff members at the store. Marge Gartner will later describe the woman near the photo counter as having her hair, quote, pulled up and wearing large gold earrings and red lipstick. Fred McGill would tell police that he also saw the African-American woman near the photo counter when he was in the store, but that he did not speak to her. Around 8.10 or 8.15, two more employees arrive for work, Cheryl Jackson and Bernadette Claffey. One of them remarks that Scott's car is parked in an odd spot, not where he usually parks when he's working. As the pair approach the entrance, this is about 8.15, 8.20, they find the store locked, which is unusual. It should be open for customers at this point. As they puzzle over this, they hear a screech of tires from the rear of the building. When they walk around to the back of the store, they discover that the service entrance to Osco is open and the store's alarm is going off. Jackson and Claffey walk next door to Kroger, where Philip Canoy, an off-duty South Bend police officer, is working security. They tell him about the open rear door and the blaring store alarm, and he calls for backup. Minutes later, Officer Joseph Markovic arrives, and he and Canoy enter the store through the rear about 8.20 a.m. They discover a horrific scene. Scott Dick... Tracy Holvoet and Connie Zalewski are dead, laying in pools of blood on the floor. Scott has been shot three times, twice in the chest and once in the head. Tracy and Connie were each shot once, execution style. In the course of the robbery, the killers helped themselves to more than $6,000 from the store safe. There was no sign of the perpetrators, no description of the vehicle they may have left in. They entered the store, opened the safe, took the money, shot three people, and left. All of this happened between 8.02 a.m. when Amy Avery knocked on the glass and caught a glimpse of an African-American man in the building, and the arrival of Cheryl Jackson and Bernadette Claffey around 8.15. There are no reports of anyone hearing gunshots or seeing the getaway car. The rear of the building was not covered by cameras, nor was there video security inside of the store. This crime occurred in a very tight time frame, both in the store and at the shopping plaza. Scott Dick arrived to open the store around 7.35 a.m., and the police would be called about 8.20 a.m. If you want to narrow the window further, 
Amy Avery, the customer who'd stopped by at 7.30 and again just after 8, she saw an African-American man in the store just after 8 a.m., which does not match the description of any of the customers or employees that should have been there. It was about 8.15 a.m. when store employees Jackson and Claffy heard squealing tires and found the rear doors of the store open and the alarm going off. When crime scene technicians analyze the scene inside of Osco, they find several pieces of evidence. The most significant clue is a note, scribbled on white paper and stained with blood. The note is found next to the body of Scott Dick. It read, white man, armor car, uniform, and the word badge. It wasn't a sentence. It was written like a list. I want to pause here for a moment because this note found near Scott's body took me right back to 1991 when I had a part-time job at a drugstore on Telegraph Road in Bloomfield. Our store manager was a 20-something guy also named Scott. He carried a small spiral-bound notebook in his pocket as he worked, and throughout the day he would make notes to himself about things he needed to get done. Then he'd tuck the notebook back in his pocket and go on about his work. But let's get back to the Osco store. The note was discovered near the body of Scott Dick, the store manager who'd opened Osco that morning. Could he be the one who wrote the note? Scrawling clues to the identity of his assailant? Or was the note a diversion, planted by the person who robbed the store and murdered three innocent people? The doors at the back of the building... These are sturdy steel doors. They're meant for deliveries and staff access, and they're secured by steel rods that go up into the door frame or down into the floor to latch them closed. Crime scene analysts will fingerprint the rear doors, the front entrance doors, and the store's safe. We need to talk about this safe and why stealing $6,000 from it is significant. The safe used by the store back in 1990 was a two-part safe. There was an upper part that could be accessed by store management. This is where the cash drawers, prepped for the next business day, are kept. The bottom part of the safe is where the deposit was dropped, and it was only accessible by the armored car company. The armored car driver would bring a key, and he would unlock the panel that accessed the combination lock for the bottom part of the safe. When the panel was unlocked, the store manager would use the combination lock so the armored car personnel could access money in the lower part of the safe. Once the money was removed, the safe would be closed, the dial would be spun to clear it, and the armored car driver would lock the panel again. The top part of the safe used a combination lock. The combination was known to the managers and assistant managers. The bottom part of the safe required both the combination lock and the key used by the armored car personnel. Store staff did not have the key required to reveal the bottom combination lock. That was something that only the armored car drivers had. When a manager left the store, either because they moved to a new store or left the employment of Osco, the key to the safe, the top half of the safe, was surrendered. The store's security code for the alarm system was changed, and the locks on the safe should also be changed. 
When a manager was no longer employed by OSCO, either because they moved to a new location or left the employment of OSCO, their keys were surrendered and the store security code for the alarm system was changed. This meant new keys were needed every time someone who was in management left. The top part of the safe used a combination lock, which was known to the managers and the assistant managers. The bottom part of the safe required both the combination lock, then the key used by the armored car personnel. When a manager or assistant manager was no longer working at a particular store, either because he or she moved to a new store or left the employment of OSCO, their keys were surrendered, the store security code for the alarm system was changed, and the locks on the safe were changed as well. How the robbers accessed the bottom part of the safe, which should only be accessible to armored car personnel, is a mystery. As news of the robbery turned triple murder spread, an eyewitness came forward, a local woman, Jody Rennells. She was driving to a 9 a.m. appointment in Mishawaka. While approaching an intersection, she noticed a car, a, quote, two-door Ford Taurus, race up to the stop sign. The vehicle was driven by a young African-American man with, quote, wild eyes. The car rolled through the intersection and she made a note of the vehicle and the driver. Two weeks after the murders, on September 12th, a South Bend police officer showed Rennell's a photo array, six young black men with short hair. Five of the images were mugshots, and the sixth image was taken from the OSCO personnel files. Rennell's picked out the photo that came from the personnel file. She said this was the guy driving the, quote, two-door Taurus, the wild-eyed man who'd rolled through a stop sign the morning of August 25th. The man in the photo she selected was a former employee of OSCO, and his name was Charles Allen. Before we continue on in the story, I would like to point out there is no such thing as a two-door Ford Taurus. The Ford Taurus has only been offered in a four-door model. Charles Allen, the man in the picture that she selected, once managed the store where the killings took place. Allen started as a clerk at an Osco store in Illinois a few years earlier, and Allen worked his way up through the company, eventually becoming manager of Store 404 in South Bend. In March of 1990, Allen was asked to resign from his position as store manager. Allen stood accused of stealing cash, making long-distance phone calls on the store's phone, and overcharging for rental items. This added up to more than $5,000 in damages. After his termination, Allen made restitution to the company. When Allen was dismissed, his keys were confiscated, the store's alarm code changed, and the locks on the store safe were replaced. It does not look like Osco Corporate filed criminal charges against Allen. He soon had another job with another drugstore, but he was terminated after a few months. In the days after the murders, the store was closed while police scoured the scene for clues. Osco offered counseling to the store's employees and the victims' families. Osco also put up a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator or perpetrators responsible, and set up a telephone hotline for tips. American Stores Incorporated, Osco's parent company, 
They ordered flags at each Osco store be flown at half-mast to honor the three employees murdered at store 404. Yesterday, Osco announced it was offering a $100,000 reward for any information that would lead to a conviction in the case. And today, arrangements were made for a direct line at the police department to take the calls. It will be manned 24 hours a day. The number to call if you information about the murders is 284-9286. Osco officials have also been meeting with the families of the victims. I have been in contact with uh, each of the family members, providing any kind of assistance, explaining uh, benefits that uh, they may have had with the company, and basically making ourselves available. We're there when they need us, and uh, I guess we all consider ourselves uh, family members uh, with Oscar. On September 11th, 1990, Charles Allen is questioned by South Bend Police. His wife, Cherise, is questioned at the same time. And they tell the same story. They went to bed in the small hours of Saturday morning, around 3 a.m. When Alan woke up, around 8 a.m., he heard his wife on the telephone. She was speaking with a family friend, Geraldine Blakely. Blakely called to make sure they were still going to the family gathering in Indianapolis later that day. Alan tells police that he may have left the house around 8.30 or 9, pick up donuts from a nearby bakery. As was their plan, Charles and Charisse left home about 11 a.m. to attend the get-together in Indianapolis. By November of 1991, the South Bend police feel the investigation is done. They have their eye on a suspect, and they want the St. Joseph County prosecutor to move forward with charges. They want Charles Allen, the former manager of Store 404, charged with three counts of murder as well as robbery. The South Bend police chief asks prosecutor Mike Barnes to move the case forward. And Barnes declines. He doesn't feel there's enough evidence to charge Allen unless he ignores the evidence that points away from Allen being the perpetrator. Let's look at the evidence again. We have customer Amy Avery knocking on the entrance at 8.02 a.m., catching a glimpse of an African-American man in the store. She would tell the prosecutor that Charles Allen was not the man she saw that morning. Then there's Marge Gartner, who spoke with an African-American woman in the store that morning. Remember? The woman by the photo counter, who was also seen by customer Fred McGill. Then there's a note left near the body of assistant manager Scott Dick. White man, armor car, uniform, and the word badge. While store employees particularly store manager Jeff Reynolds, thought the handwriting looked like that of Charles Allen, an expert from the Indiana State Police Laboratory felt it unlikely that Allen wrote the note. The scene was checked for footprints, but none recovered from the store matched footwear owned by Charles Allen. Fingerprints at the scene were another matter. There were more than 200 fingerprints collected, and two of them were linked to Charles Allen. These prints were found on the rear doors, not far from where the bodies were discovered. An FBI analyst will later testify that he couldn't say if the prints had been there for five minutes, five months, or five years. This raised the question, could those fingerprints be there from when Alan worked at the store? While they dusted the store safe for evidence, they did not recover any prints from the safe. There was also the eyewitness, Jody Rennells, 
who saw a wild-eyed African-American man driving a two-door Ford Taurus, and she later picked Charles Allen out of a photo array. In December of 1990, Charles Allen received a card in the mail. It read, quote, from all your friends at Osco's, past, present, and deceased. Have a Merry Christmas and a We All Hope to See You Back Here in South Bend Real Soon. And yes, it was written that way. I'm reading it exactly as it was written. The card was unsigned, and the message inside was scrawled in capital letters. It appears that Michael Swanson, a detective from the South Bend Police Department, was the person who sent the card to Charles Allen. Swanson was the lead investigator on the Osco case. Detective Swanson, along with other officers from the department, would visit Allen at work in Indianapolis or leave their business cards on his vehicle. Eventually, Allen would leave Indiana, moving south to Georgia. Before he moved, he and his wife, Charisse, split up. The break between Charles and Charisse was not amicable. After the split, police met with Charisse, advising her of the $100,000 reward for information on the case. Remember, Charisse provided an alibi for Charles Allen that morning. He was home with her at 8 a.m. Charisse was reminded that if she wanted to tell them what really happened that day, there is, after all, this big cash reward. Despite pressure from the authorities, Charisse Allen refused to recant the alibi she provided for her former husband. Much to the frustration and disappointment of many, including law enforcement and the victim's families, the St. Joseph County prosecutor, Michael Barnes, would not bring charges against Charles Allen. The case would languish, no additional information was forthcoming, and Barnes wouldn't pursue charges unless the case against Allen was solid. This decision did not endear him to certain members of the South Bend police force or the South Bend community. In 1995, one of the eyewitnesses, Fred McGill, the man who came in looking for razors and spoke with Tracy Holvoet, he passed away so his account of what happened that morning will never be heard in court. In 1996, Maurice and Phyllis Holvoet, parents of pharmacist Tracy Holvoet, hire an attorney, Christopher Toth. They ask him to file a motion requesting that Barnes either reassign the case to another prosecutor or that Barnes bring the case before a grand jury. The court ruled against Christopher Toth and the Holvoets. They appealed this decision to the state Supreme Court, who upheld the lower court ruling. But Toth and the Holvoets weren't having it. Toth decided that he would run for St. Joseph County Prosecutor, and in 1998, with prosecution of the Osco slangs a big part of his campaign, he defeated incumbent prosecutor Michael Barnes and took office. Toth made Michael Swanson, the man who'd sent Charles Allen an anonymous Christmas card back in 1990, commander of the Special Crimes Unit. And on April 25, 2000, Charles Allen was charged with the robbery of the Osco store, as well as three counts of first-degree murder. In August of 2000, Allen's defense attorney, Kevin McGough, asked for a special prosecutor to handle the case. 
He felt that Toth had a conflict of interest, but the court denied his request. In October of 2000, Toth himself asked for a special prosecutor in this case, and the request was granted. Two prosecutors from Allen County, Indiana, were assigned to handle the prosecution of Charles Allen. In the summer of 2011, almost 11 years after the murders took place, Charles Allen went on trial. This case ended in a mistrial because jurors could not reach a unanimous verdict. Jury foreman John Pavey told the press that it felt as if he'd failed the victims' families. That he and eight others were firm in believing that Allen was guilty, but others on the jury felt strongly about Allen's innocence, including a female juror who said, I will go to my grave saying that he's not guilty. Not to be dissuaded, Toth tried again. Allen's attorney became ill, which delayed proceedings for several weeks. Then the winter weather put breaks on the trial. Finally, in the summer of 2002, Charles Allen again went on trial for the robbery and murders at Osco. This time, the prosecution got their conviction. However, during the second trial, Curtis Crenshaw, an inmate at the Wabash County Correctional Facility, was called to testify. When he was asked if he was at the Osco store the morning of August 25, 1990, he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. He would not testify to anything that would incriminate himself. It would come out that Crenshaw told another Wabash inmate that he was responsible for the murders at Osco 12 years earlier. The inmate that he confided in, Stephen Bethel, was willing to testify about Crenshaw's statements. Bethel and Crenshaw were acquainted before they were incarcerated. Bethel said that he saw Crenshaw the morning of the murders, that sunny August Saturday in 1990. Crenshaw told him he'd robbed a place and things went wrong and people died. Bethel did testify, but outside of the jury's presence, that Crenshaw and Bethel cased the South Bend Osco store a week or so before the murders, discussing how easy it would be to rob the place. Bethel said that he'd seen Crenshaw throw the murder weapon in the river. He told the court that he'd spoken of this when he, Bethel, was arrested in South Bend back in March of 1991. When it came time for Bethel to testify to this in court before the jury, he protested. He said that he was afraid he was putting his life in danger if he testified in open court about Crenshaw. Bethel's testimony was stricken from the record and the jury was instructed to disregard it. According to court documents dated August 4, 2004, it does not appear that Curtis Crenshaw's prints were compared against prints found on the back door of the Osco store. I should also mention here that these same court documents show that in December of 1990, Detective Swanson interviewed Stephen Bethel, who shared the story about Crenshaw, the weapon, and that they'd once cased the Osco store and discussed robbing it. That's the same Detective Swanson who supposedly sent the anonymous card to Charles Allen around Christmas of 1990. Charles Allen was found guilty in his second trial, and Toth finally had the conviction he'd based his political campaign on, and in January of 2003, Allen was sentenced to 144 years for the killings of his former co-workers and the robbery of the store he once managed. 
At sentencing, it was mentioned that Allen showed no remorse for the slayings, and he responded, quote, I cannot show remorse for something I didn't do. I offer them sympathy. When allowed to address the judge prior to sentencing, he insisted on his innocence, accusing prosecutors and police of unethical and dishonest conduct. Michael McAlexander, one of the special prosecutors on the case, responded, quote, I think what Mr. Allen said in court was disrespectful for everyone involved in this investigation. The families of the victims, particularly the Holvoets, were pleased with the guilty verdict. Charles Allen's conviction was overturned on appeal, and in 2004, after serving 576 days in prison, Charles Allen was released. The higher court ruled that the judge excluded evidence for the defense that should have been allowed in. In July of 2006, in a Henry County, Indiana courtroom, the case was tried for a third time. While you cannot put a price tag on justice, it's thought that the state of Indiana spent more than $100,000 on each of the three trials. Henry County was selected because of pre-trial publicity in South Bend. As with his first trial, the result was a hung jury. At each of the three trials, Cherise Garrett, the woman Allen was married to and living with in August of 1990 testified that he was home with her at the time of the murders. You may recall that she and Charles Allen divorced in 1991, and police spoke with her after the divorce, reminding her of a generous cash reward in the case. To this day, the $100,000 reward remains unclaimed. One year ago today, police ribboned off this store to investigate the scene of a brutal triple homicide. Today, memorial ribbons mark the one-year anniversary of the Osco murders and a private service for those who knew Scott Dick, Tracy Holvoet, and Connie Zaleski. It was just a uh, time to get together back with the, the families and the people of our store and uh, others that were involved from the beginning and uh, pay a tribute to Scott, Connie, and Tracy to let people know we have not forgotten. A person or persons entered the Osco store that August morning in 1990, opening the safe and murdering three innocent people. It seems unlikely that Charles Allen was the perpetrator. I think that the stories told by Stephen Bethel about Curtis Crenshaw are interesting and provide some doubt about Allen being involved. I should mention that Crenshaw an African-American man in his 20s was close with his sister, an African-American female, in August of 1990. It's possible that Crenshaw was the man seen by Amy Avery and that Crenshaw's sister was the woman near the photo counter who spoke with customer Marge Gartner. We must also consider the note found near the body of store manager Scott Dick. White man, armor car, uniform, and the word badge. Could the note have been scrawled by Dick in the moments before his murder? Clues as to the identity of the persons responsible? Remember, Cherise, the former wife of Charles Allen, she testified that he was home with her the morning of the murder, and she testified to this at all three of his trials. Since the pair were estranged, it would have been easy for her to recant and claim the $100,000 reward. Her story has not changed. 
Charles Allen was with her in their home that morning. Finally, we have the testimony of Joni Rennells, who saw a wild-eyed African-American man driving a two-door Ford Taurus, and then she picked Allen out of a lineup where his photo was the only picture that was not a mugshot. It seems unlikely that we will ever learn what really happened at Osco Drugstore 404. At the end of 2006, the charges against Allen were dismissed without prejudice. This means that if new evidence comes to light, Allen, who is now almost 60 years old and resides in Georgia, could be tried a fourth time for the murders of his former co-workers. If you would like to check out some of my sources or for additional information, including photos, please visit our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. Before we wrap up, I would like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters, Chris, Leanne, Molly, Jamie, Rebecca, Lisa, Cecily, Kristen, Elisa, and Robin Warder of The Trail Went Cold. Thank you for your support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show and receive some amazing perks such as early access to episodes, Patreon-only content, as well as stickers, a handwritten note from me, and a shout-out on a future episode, visit patreon.com slash alreadygone. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.